I'm Joe White, the voice of Chris Redfield. When I'm not surviving the horror of the Spencer Mansion, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters, and when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. My name is Richard Wall. Just think of me as a ghost from the past. This is Paula Rhodes, Evelyn in Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. I'm Reva DePala, the voice of Rebecca Chambers. Hi, my name is Allison Court. My name is Sarah Coates, the voice of Marguerite Baker, and you are listening to Crimson Head Elder Podcast. Want to come to dinner? Good evening and welcome to the Crimson Head Elder Podcast, celebrating the incredible body of work by actor, voice artist and voice coach Karen Strassman. Resident Evil fans will know Karen as antagonist icons Alexia Ashford and Annette Birkin, but of course there are so many fans worldwide that will also know Karen for an almost unrivaled list of credits across both anime and video game genres. Karen Strassman, welcome to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. Thank you so much. We've got myself, hi, I'm George Trevor, and also asking the questions, Sonny Bauer. Hey everyone, glad to be back. And the Oracle Dragon. Hi everyone, glad to be here. And hi Karen, thanks for joining us. Your credit list across television, film, anime and video games would be a podcast in itself. (laughs) Leaving some time for Resident Evil chat, what would be your highlights from those genres that you've applied your wonderful talent to? Oh gosh, gosh, that's such a hard question. I've done so many things and everything is such a journey, you know? I can list some fan favorites. A lot of different projects have touched me in different ways and, you know, contributed to my life in different ways. And perhaps I've contributed to those projects in different ways. We just had a, the Code Geass movie that just came out, which was really exciting because that was almost 10 years ago that we recorded Code Geass series. And, you know, it became pretty iconic with the fans. So to be able to come back 10 years later and reprise the role of Colin and do this movie, and we just had a really lovely premiere for it in Los Angeles. It's just, it's exciting, you know, when you are with a character for so long and, and get to reprise it. I'm currently have a recurring role on Bosch right now. God, what a wonderful series to be on. Bosch is just such a well-written, well-rounded series, and just all of the creatives involved in it are just brilliant. Being on Preacher last year was quite a highlight, just a delight. There's just so many projects that I've been part of that have been a real fun ride. Recurring on Weeds for a season was an absolute delight. Yes, you had quite a scene in in Weed, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite a few quite a few interesting scenes with Kevin Nealon and Ray Louise Parker. Because I'm one of those actors that has done so many things, like there's a lot of actors who are known for just this one thing that they've invested a lot of time in their career in, and I've just hopped around in so many different genres. And you mentioned Preacher. It must have been so much fun playing that kind of over-the-top comic book character, having worked in anime and, and had the, you know, uh, voiced these fantastical characters before. It must have been so wonderful being on set, having to play that type of character. It was such a delight. One of the many things that I love about Preacher is all of the actors in it. I, I just think they're so talented. And, you know, you don't really think about when you're watching it, but they're all portraying comic book characters and yet they're making them so real. And for myself, when I watch Preacher, I just feel so much affection and 
care for each character because they're all the paradox is they're all cartoon characters, but they're all so human, you know, <laughs> Jesse, you know, just struggling to find God and the love triangles. And they're all so grounded in all of these human experiences that you actually forget that they're comic book characters. And that was sort of my both challenge and goal when I was invited onto the show was to really go out there and have this be a really fun, you know, comic book character that's really out there. Yeah. And at the same time, have her be believable, believable as this character. So not feeling like I was playing a, a clown or some out, but that this character really exists in that world and is totally credible, you know, and that was really fun to be able to do that. And when they when they put the auditions out for it, it wasn't a German character at all. It was just, oh. I think they were auditioning men first, and they didn't quite find what they wanted amongst, I guess, their options. And they put the audition out to women, and they were just looking for sort of a passionately obsessed scientist. And that was <laughs> really all that, that I got in the breakdowns. And ah, so quite quite sort of good experience for Annette Birkin then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went more into the Annette Birkin range with it, but then I thought. It was my idea to put an accent on it because when I was putting the audition on tape, I said to my friend who was taping me, I said, I don't know, I'm just jonesing to do this with a German accent. I think it would be so much fun. And they didn't say they wanted it, but they do have a lot of different accents on the, you know, on the show. So I could probably get away with it. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it just because it would be so much fun. We put it on tape and we just, we thought it was, we just thought it was a kick. We thought it was fun. So we, we submitted the audition just more just because it was fun for us. Yeah. And, um, and I guess they liked it too. And I got invited on the show. And it, what was cool about that character too is because that character isn't in the comic books. I got to really, along with the writers and the creatives that I was working with, we got to kind of create her together, which was really fun too. Wake up. Wake up. Open your eyes. Hold still. I'm not infected. Sherry? Where's Sherry? Sherry. Sherry's fine. Do you know Sherry? It's an impressive display of strength. What happened to her? We have to assess the situation. Who are you? I'm Claire. I didn't foresee this. Where is she? What? Where oh. Is she? Annette, tell me, what happened to William? I don't know. Who's, who is that? The creature responsible for this. What? Can you help me find Sherry? Seems to be evolving much faster than expected. Where are you going? Look, I don't have time to play 20 questions. Everything's under control. I need to find Sherry. My daughter is not your concern. Okay, this one's a very long one, and it comes from USS Command, who says, What led you to become so considerably involved with the Resident Evil series? Having voiced the lead characters from many series installments, stretching all the way back to Resident Evil 3, both Resident Evil, The Umbrella Chronicles, and Darkseid Chronicles, Resident Evil Revelations, the CGI films Retribution and Vendetta, and of course, the superb remake of Resident Evil 2. Well, first of all, I have to say, dude, you've done your homework. <laughs> 
I couldn't have <laughs> I couldn't have listed all those as well. That's really cool, and I'm I'm flattered and honored that you followed me and all those things. That's super cool. What impressed us and the fans was that your roster with the Resident Evil games goes all the way back to Resident Evil Three. Yeah, that surprised us. That's so cool. <laughs> you know what led me to become involved in all of that was just just good fortune. Some of them I auditioned for. Some of them, the producers or the casting directors just directly cast me in it. The most recent one, Resident Evil 2, the remake, as Annette Birkin, was it was actually an offer. I was flattered and touched to have just been offered that role without auditioning. I think because I had been involved in some of the other ones, I think there was an appeal to them and to the fan base to bring me back into the the world. But I, I, in a way, you might have to ask them why they offered me the role. I don't know. I just feel very lucky and delighted, especially this rendition of Annette. You know, I just think she's, and we had tried when we were on the mocap stage and creating her, we really tried to give her a whole nother dimension to her and make her much more human and not just a two-dimensional evil character, but really bring the humanity of, of her struggle, you know, as a impassioned scientist. But at the same time, you know, her original thought in all of these experiments was that they wanted to save and protect the world. What a horror that it turned the opposite way. And now she's trying to protect and, and also not let the secrets get out. She's not a cut and dry evil character anymore. She's, she's actually a quite tortured character. Yes. Having to decide between, you know, the world and her daughter and all of these really horrible decisions and, and, you know, even having to kill her husband. It's just fantastic that you were able to work an artist of your talents with a director like Tom Keegan, that you were able to portray and as as you say she isn't black and white evil as she was in in the original game but she is portrayed more conflicted i think in this game and, and certainly more dimensional and not necessarily an out and out antagonist yeah yeah yoke asks annette birkin is developed into a more conflicted multi-dimensional character than her original re2 incarnation we see the narrative from her point of view allowing us to relate to her struggle and towards the end of her life she was trying to redeem herself would you agree and do you think if annette had survived would she continue down the road to redemption well, that's a cool question i think this is one of those sliding door questions where it could go either way i would like to believe that she would. I would imagine that if she was to come back, that she would probably go after Umbrella. Ooh. That's, That's what I think. Yeah. That's one thing I think that she would do because they, they were her demise in many ways, you know? And, yeah, and, Willi and Williams as well. Yeah, yeah. If they had um, just left think, them alone. <laughs> I think another thing that she would do is I think that she might go back to the lab and start working on other, you know, she might have, you know, been inspired to create other things that could save the world in a different way. And then the other thing that she is also possible, and this also depends on what happens to her daughter, you know, if her daughter is saved, I think that she would want to make a better world for her daughter. And I think she would also want to try and pull her daughter back into her life again and be a better mother. But, you know, if something happened to her daughter, you know, she could turn crazy and, you know, hate herself for that and go out for revenge as well. 
I think Annette, she very much is walks that line and can yes. very easily tumble into a kind of crazed, obsessive insanity like we've seen. So I think there's a number of possibilities of what I could see her doing if she came back. Oh, wow. The Oracle Dragon's got a, a fantastic question that goes into that relationship with Sherry and whether there's any guilt in, in how that relationship played out. But well, we're going to save that for part two of our interview. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. yes. And now yes. people will have to tune into part two. Yes. I love that. One of my favorite moments in the entire game, by the way, the Sherry and uh, Annette and Claire moments. Shh, that's for part two. <laughs> well, it's in the game. <laughs> I know, but the question is... <laughs> this one comes from M. Greg, and he says, Did anything in particular help prepare you for the role of Annette Birkin? Was it a book or a video or film series or a previous working experience? I don't think there was anything particular. I think it was really the work we did. You know, we had rehearsals. We don't always get rehearsals, but we had rehearsals. And Tom and I spent time on the phone talking about her, you know, who she is, who she was, her background. I got to speak to some of the creators on set, and I got to speak to the writer about her. Did some research into past iterations, and um, and then, you know, we really built her on the motion capture stage together, you know? So it wasn't really from past experience. It was, it was from that, all of those combined experiences. Sherry? Claire? Sherry, are you all right? What are you doing? I'm here to help. Sherry's been implanted. She can't be saved. William is still out there, and if I don't stop him... This conversation is over. Wait. Wait. I, I can treat her. In my lab. It's not far away. Mommy? There's not enough time. Millions of lives are at stake. Sherry. Mommy loves you, sweetie. Bye. Not just in Resident Evil, but frankly across the whole video game genre, you've voiced these two most iconic female antagonists, Annette Birkin and, of course, Alexia Ashford. Do you ever find it intimidating to voice such characters who have also been voiced by previous voice artists? Yeah, I do. I do. You know, because I want to. I want to live up to what other people have done and then build upon it, you know? And I also, I think what comes into play as well is that the fans have expectations, you know, and they either liked or didn't like or, you know, however they felt, but they also became accustomed to some of those other characters. So, you know, you're kind of stepping in, you know, to something that they're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that I'll either be just as good or I'll bring something perhaps more compelling or compelling in a different way or more complex I, I think mostly my intimidation factor is just is literally just in respect to the fans. You know, I want to, you know, I don't want to dash their connections to the characters that they've been used to before. 
Mm. Um, and I want to, and I want to create an experience that's really, um, compelling for them. What was so wonderful about the character of Annette Birkin in the remake, despite the fact that they've recast many years after the original incarnation, but you've been afforded such a multidimensional character uh, yeah. that yeah. Uh, far from being jarring or taking us out of the scene because it's a different actor, enjoying and appreciating your performance has very much brought us even more into the character. I hope so. That's my hope. Thank you for saying that. I, I hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Having worked with Capcom since the production of Resident Evil 3 in 1999, how has Capcom's approach to voice acting changed throughout the years? Huh, that's a cool question. It's a little bit hard to answer that question because I don't really work directly with Capcom. I work uh, indirectly with them, meaning that I interface with the voiceover director and the motion capture directors. So Capcom is working with the producers and they're communicating with the voiceover directors and the motion capture directors. So I am actually don't really interface directly with Capcom very much at all in the creative process. I mean, I will say that I think over the years, I think the tendency with Resident Evil and also with many, many games across the board is that we're really moving away from these sort of two-dimensional characters where muhuhahaha, it's an evil character. And mm. hi hope, hi hope, you know, I'm a I'm a victim. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> across the board, the entertainment industry is really looking to make their characters much more complex. And I'm finding that in a lot of games and even in cartoons and anime, you know, that even within the world of cartoons, that we're always looking to make them more dimensional just have them come to life in sort of a human way in spite of the fact that they're animated. And so I think that's the general tendency, and I think Capcom would probably agree with what I'm saying. It seems to be that way from uh, previous interviews that we've had. Back in the day, it would be just you record in the studio, essentially just the dialogue. And the process seems to be more recent is, you know, you have motion capture involved, you have interaction with the other actors, and that all seems to culminate in a more, uh, I guess, uh, organic portrayal. Yeah, more organic and more fluid and more yeah. fluid as well. And probably I would imagine that gamers would experience it that way too, you know, I hope. Absolutely. Mm. What interested me, Karen, is in a previous interview hearing you talk about how when you've been working in anime, you embodied the character that you're voicing. For example, when voicing a teenage boy's voice, you, you, you very much encompass the body movements of a teenage boy yeah. with your shoulders. Yeah. And so I just thought it was fantastic that someone with that appreciation and, and expresses that are in that way that you were then involved in doing mocap. Yeah, yeah. It's cool, too, because my background is theater. I come from that world where that's what acting is, is embodying a character. And I think most accomplished voiceover actors would agree that it's very hard to do a voice without it getting inside you and transforming your physicality. And for myself, I, I don't even feel when I'm doing a voice that I'm doing the physicality first. It's just as I get into the character, the physicality kind of just takes over and you just have to make sure it's quiet in front of the mic. But it just <laughs> kind of takes over when you when you let it step inside you or, you know, you step inside it or whatever weird thing happens to make it come to life. <laughs> it must be quite interesting with some of the more fantastical and interesting characters you've done across anime. 
doing all those sort of body movements must be a great workout. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I remember there was this one show where our characters were riding a horse and I, I wasn't even aware that I was bouncing up and down in front of the <laughs> mic, like that I thought, like I literally was in my mind. I was in that world on a horse. I don't know if it was the director, or one of the actors that turned to me and they're like, Karen, you, you don't need to ride a horse in studio. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing that. <laughs> and everybody started laughing because, and I, I was doing it quietly because you learn to be very quiet in front of the mic, but I did not even realize that I was bouncing up and down. Yeah. Oh no, you know what it was? It was, it was that, um, you, you have to have your face a certain amount of distance from the mic. And as I was bouncing up and down a little bit, it was, you know, I was altering my distance from the mic and, and they're like, Karen, can you bounce a little bit less on your horse? <laughs> 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 and I did not, I, I honestly, I did not even realize I was doing it. So that was really funny. So you must have had so much fun doing the motion capture for Annette whilst you're delivering the lines as well. It was a more a whole experience. I got to tell you, in my experience, I think motion capture is the most difficult acting I've ever done. When you look at theater and on camera and television and movies and then, you know, you go to any kind of voiceover, narration, anime, original animation. Motion capture, I, I think, is the most challenging because you're on a stage. So you're on this big, it's like, it's almost like you're in this big, you know, the sizes of three gymnasiums or something. And you're being filmed in all directions by cameras. But you have to imagine the set. So when you're on TV or movies, you're actually on a set yeah. with a table and chairs. And if you're holding a, you know, if you're playing pool, then you actually have a pool table. If you're opening a door, you're actually opening a door. If you're polishing an airplane, there's an airplane and you have a rag in your hand. And for example, when I did motion capture for Wolfenstein too, um, I played the character of Maria Laurent and I was a plane engineer. And so I was supposed to be fixing all these planes and I had to mime it. So you're in these imaginary places having to mime these activities mm. and you're all hooked up with all of these wires on you with a, like <laughs> a microphone and camera just jerry-rigged you know facing your face so sometimes when you're looking at the other actors you're you don't even see them because the camera's blocking that you have to pretend right. like you're looking in their eyes and then if you put your arms around them you can't really completely do that because you have all the rigging going on it's so contrived in a way and so you know, when you're doing voiceover in front, you can imagine all that, but you're not seeing all these, you're not in the middle of all these fake things. Yes, yes. So you can close your eyes or keep them open and imagine being in that world. Whereas motion capture, it's like everything is stopping you from imagining really being there. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that's helping you to be there. Yeah. I really had to go back to my childhood experience playing cowboys and Indians or whatever we were playing at that age. You know, you have a twig in your hand and that's the gun. Or you have like, if you're a superhero, you have like, you know, a blanket from the bed around your shoulders and that's your cape, you know. <laughs> right. And motion capture is very much like that. It makes me think back to when the Star Wars prequels were being filmed and Ewan McGregor said that basically all they ever did was shoot on like a green screen stage. Yeah. And and he and they're and they're like, okay, this or this like orb or ball or whatever that's like taped to like the wall. That's your reference point for where you're looking at, like the sunset yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And, he, and he's and he's like, it was just a nightmare. I can imagine that motion capture is like that, but even even more restrictive because of what you were saying with being rigged up. Because yeah, at, yeah. at least Absolutely. they get to wear the costumes and sort of act it out and imagine it. But you have to do that and be strapped to like, you know, this suit with this camera and yeah. everything like that. Yeah. And, and like, and for Annette, she wears a lab coat. 
you know, I'm in a motion capture suit. They can't put a lab coat over that. So what, and often I had to like take a pens and pad out of a pocket of my lab coat. So they literally had like a little pocket they had to tape onto my leg, (laughs) you know, and then I would pull a pencil out of a little thing. Like it wasn't even a pocket. It was like something that they uh, Velcroed onto my leg so (laughs) that I would have a semblance of a pocket to pull an imaginary pen out. (laughs) (laughs) Talk talk about really jerry-rigging the process. (laughs) Wow. Uh-huh. Move. He's mine. This has to end. Sorry, William. Left me no choice. Call this thing William. Why? It shouldn't have been like this. It's Umbrella's fault, this whole mess. Your umbrella, too. You're telling me you weren't involved in this. Yes. But we never meant for this to happen. Okay, this one comes from Yoke, who says, For those who don't know, what is the anime workshop you are presenting with Strawberry Hill Studios on May 11th? As well as being an actor and voiceover artist, I'm also a coach. 30 years ago, when I first moved to France, I got a job as a dialect coach coaching French actors to act in English for the camera because there are so many co-productions that go to France and the actors need to be able to act in English. I I was just a fluke, but I was very good at it. I got a full-time job doing that over in France and that branched out my geek passion for accents. And I began to, you know, work on um, and delight in doing all kinds of accents myself. And so parallel to my on-camera and voiceover career, I also became a dialect coach And so I've all throughout all of these years, I've coached many, many actors um, in private, helping them either lose their accent or helping them learn an accent. And then I I guess people were happy with what I was bringing to them. And they would say, Karen, you know, and I have an audition or I want to learn to do voiceover or I have an audition on camera and you coached me for the last one. It had an accent, but this one doesn't. But I really enjoyed working with you or I booked the role or whatever. And would you just coach me for this, even though it doesn't have an accent? So I just developed a coaching practice where actors come to me to coach them for auditions or to coach them to work with on camera characters or to learn voiceover. And that sort of branched out into giving workshops. You know, when I do conventions, when I can, I always try and do an introduction to voiceover. And so fans get to come up and get to try their hand at audition copy. And then, you know, I give them some adjustments and coaching, and then they get to do it again. And I also do, when I do conventions, I do um, an intro to dialect panel, which is always so much fun, and people love that as well. And, uh, And that sort of branched out to people inviting me to go to different places and different studios and give voiceover acting classes in those studios. So Strawberry Hill has invited me to do a series of workshops with them. And the last one I did was a voiceover for anime workshop where we worked on audition copy and everybody got to get up and, you know, read an audition as we would, as I do, as all of us do who do voiceover. And I brought in, you know, copy that we all read when we audition. And um, the people who came to the workshop got to audition like we do. And I would give them adjustments. And, you know, it's really fun because when you have a group like that, everybody sort of learns, you know, on the shoulders of others. And, you know, I'll give somebody an adjustment and then the next person who gets up to the mic will incorporate that already into the read that they're about to do. 
So the one that I'm doing next Saturday, May 11th, at Strawberry Hills Music Studio is an anime workshop, but we're going to have actual live anime on the screen. And um, I'm going to be teaching people how to dub anime, but it's going to be, will be live and it'll be there on the screen. And there is a rumor, and I can't promise this. It looks like we're going to be working with Code Geass since the movie just came out. And so participants who come to this workshop Hopefully, we'll get to work on that, which, you know, I, again, don't quote me on this, but um, I think that that is our goal, which would be really exciting. We're going to try and keep it pretty small, you know, and if there's an overflow, we'll have a, um, a waiting list and everything so that everybody can get equal time at the mic. And Strawberry Hills Music is in just outside of San Francisco in the old George Lucas Studios. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Raj is a huge Star Wars fan. He might have even named one of his kids after a Star Wars character. That was why. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure many do, but just in case there are any listeners that might be slightly newer to the Resident Evil series and may have missed out on a fantastic Resident Evil game, Resident Evil Dead Aim, Raj Ramaya both composed music, the fantastic Save Room theme for Resident Evil Dead Aim, and also voiced the wonderful Bruce McGiven. And so, of course, you've been working closely with Raj Mariah. That's his studio, Strawberry Hill Music. I would so be there if I wasn't on the opposite coast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in New Jersey, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a long ways away. (laughs) It sounds like it would be so much fun, Karen. I would would love to be a part of one of your workshops. The last one was super fun, and we'll be be doing more. I'm, I'm hoping to do an accent one, and I'm hoping to do a video game one as well. And then we might start the cycle over for people who haven't had an opportunity to work with me. This question comes from Paul. His alias is George Trevor in the community. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, personally, it'd be a question for myself, myself as well. What advice would you give to aspiring voice actors, whether they're struggling to make that break into the industry or for those who have just started on that road? My first answer would be to take acting classes and get involved in as much theater as you can. A lot of people think that Being a voiceover actor just means you have to have a good voice. And, you know, people will say, oh, people say I have a good voice and that I should, you know, do voiceover. And of course, having a a good or interesting or beautiful voice is a wonderful thing. And it's certainly a plus in doing voiceover. But, you know, voiceover is about making us, it's the storytelling. And so it's about making a story come to life and it's about making a character come to life. And so in order to do that, you really, you really need to take acting classes and, and study theater and learn that whole process. Or, you know, learning, that sounds a little pretentious, like you need to learn that process. <laughs> more, more just have an opportunity to play in that process, you know, because I think, I think acting is a very natural thing. We all do it when we're playing, when we're kids. We pretend to be things and we, we drop ourselves into imaginary worlds and we, put ourselves in imaginary circumstances and, and acting is really having very truthful actions and reactions in imaginary circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and I, I yeah. agree with that. I not only should you, like you said, have a great voice, but even in, in you know, the brief background that I had, uh, it's, it's all movement and it, it's like mind, body, spirit in a way to encompass all those things. Like you said, you, you know, you'd be riding an imaginary horse while <laughs> pretending to do that as the character. It, it's, it's like, it would be incomplete if you didn't have, I think those other components, because you should really try to be in this, you know, in the world, like, like you say, and I, I very much agree with that. Yeah. And, and to, you know, learn, you know, when, you know, the characters in the scene, what you think about 
their background, who they are. You know, did they have an evil father when they were, you know, a young prince? And will that affect their relationship to this foe that they're dealing with? Or, you know, you know, like, who are they and what, what is important to them and what is part of who they are? And you learn all about that when you're putting on a play or when you're studying acting. And all of that, you know, really voiceover is, is about acting, but you can only translate it with your voice. But it's all those human emotions and all those human experiences. And it's not just about having a line reading in a certain voice, you know. <laughs> um, I would highly enthusiastically suggest search out acting classes and, and get involved in theater and do as many plays as you can. And then, you know, moving onwards, then I'd say, you know, find, find voiceover workshops or coaches that you can work with, you know, until you feel confident enough to, that you, you really have a certain level of skill that you can make a demo. And when you have a demo, that's, that's what you submit to agencies to get represented by an agent. And I would also say that depending on where people live, if you can find any animation school in proximity to where you live that you can offer to for free, you know, to do voices for their students. You know, the same thing, like if you can find a film school near where you live and offer for free to be in the student films, all of that acting across the board and all of those experiences are going to really give people the experience to begin a professional career. That's wonderful advice. Thank you so much for that. The experience and, and knowledge that you have that you would be bringing through, and I'm sure mentioning in, in these workshops yes. um, that I've heard you talk about before that took me by surprise and really interested me when I saw you demonstrate how various different accents resonate in different parts of the mouth and the throat. Yeah. I saw you display, for example, the differences between Russian, French, and American, and you may want to talk about that, those different areas. Sure, sure. Well, for example, um, Russian is really an accent that is placed how I see it, it is in pocket, in back of roof of mouth. So a Russian really hits in the pocket roof of mouth. But with Russian, you do not drop jaw. So whereas with American, we drop our jaw and our voice really resonates with standard American very much in our chest and also underneath our chin, you know, our jaw flops down, flaps yeah. down, and we resonate really on our jaw, underneath our jaw, and really in our chest. So you're British, so I'm not going to really do the British accent justice, because when I'm speaking to a British person, I get self-conscious. <laughs> oh, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> but you don't so much drop the, your jaw as Americans do, and it really resonates through the nose, and the sounds hit the roof of the mouth and they go through the nose, and also with British consonants are much more are much richer, and the British people tend to express themselves much more readily on the consonants. For example, if a British person says, God, that's that's fantastic, that's brilliant, an American person's gonna say, God, that's fantastic, that's brilliant. And we'll completely express ourselves on our vowels. And you can really hear the difference, yeah, that contrast yeah. when I put them right next to each other. What I loved about your, your British accent then, um, English accent, I'd say in case the Scottish guys start shouting at me, um, <laughs> a rare time I've heard an American do an English accent and not gone for that kind of archetypal, very posh, upper class, you know, over the top. I mean, that, that really generally, honestly, sounded very natural. Oh, good. Oh, good. When we do accents, so here's the thing. Accents come from muscles that are developed in different parts 
of our, what I would, as a coach, I would call our instrument. So the Brits have a lot of muscle there on the roof of their mouth. So all the sounds are bouncing off that. And it's also resonating through the nasal passage. So for example, when a Brit, when a British person tries to do American, what happens is, is they don't drop their jaw very much and they're going to really aim their voice to the roof of their mouth. And they're going to really kind of accentuate the consonants a lot more than Americans would accentuate a consonant. So what I'm doing is an imitation of a British person. You can hear that I'm resonating through the nose, that I'm not dropping the jaw. And that's that's the mouth placement that they're used to having. Whereas where an American is trying to do a British accent, they're going to drop their jaw and do this sort of thing where they're leaning on the, on the vowels still. This is, br- and, this is brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, It's amazing advice and just yeah. fascinating. And so, you know, in, in my own personal exploration of accents and when I coach, what I look for is, you know, literally what parts of the instrument are they using that we just are those muscles in us are underdeveloped. For example, you were asking about, you were mentioning the French accent and the French accent is the jaw is very close. They do not open their jaw at all. And then it's really in the front of the mouth. So it's like it's hitting the front roof of the mouth. It's resonating through the nose. And um, I'm not even doing stereotypical. This is very, a lot of my French friends, they will talk like this. If I did the stereotypical French, I will really push on the sounds like that. It would be yeah. Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> but, but, you know, you know, they speak when they practice English enough. They have much more of a lighter French accent. It's not like Pepe Le Pew. You can really hear that it's in front of the mouth, that they do not drop their jaw, that it resonates through the nose. So, you know, learning an accent always starts with where is that accent located and either what muscles are they using or what muscles do I use in my accent that they don't use? Yes. That is such valuable and interesting advice so that our listeners can fully appreciate that free seminar that you so generously did. <laughs> yeah. I'll put a link, that interview that I was referencing where you really demonstrate the way that your jaw moves up and down between French and, and English and American with the back of the throat with Russian. I'll put a link to that interview where so listeners can actually watch and, and, and see you demonstrate that. Oh, cool. I appreciate that. I'd love to see it again. The way that you were able to just switch between not only the accents themselves, but how someone who wouldn't naturally have that accent yeah. attempting that accent. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> just just yeah. wow. Get me over to California soon. <laughs> <laughs> Please come. Or I'll or hey, if there's a venue in New Jersey or any state that wanna host a workshop, I I'm happy to fly over there and I'll have to start looking around. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Here's the thing. Everybody keeps saying that Artie has the true American accent because of how deep his voice is. You have a pretty standard American accent. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'd, say it's, <laughs> I'd say it's, you know, it's not, you know, from the New York, you know, you start to go into the East Coast and you go into New York and then they're not opening their jaw as much. You know, there's a lot of different accents in New, in New York. You know, there's more the, the Jewish accent that's more like up there. Yeah. Um, and there's a, and, and then you can go into the Bronx and the Bronx is much more in there. That's wow. quite a, you know, there's a, like the Italian New York accent. Um, and there's all these different subtleties and areas. And then of course there's New Jersey when New Jersey is kind of like they're chewing, they got chewing gum in their mouth. It's a little bit <laughs> yep. more, you know, they're chewing a little bit more. And then, you know, you got Baston. So, you know, you have all those where, you know, it's colder. So the jaw is going to be tighter and it's going to resonate more through the nasal passage. And then you go to Minnesota. It's cold. And they were sort of descended from the Swedish people. So they're not, they're going to resonate through their nose in Minnesota a little bit. And it's going to be a little bit reminiscent of Swedish, but 
you know, don't you know, Artie doesn't have any of those. He's, he's much more standard. And, you know, and then there, and then there's a Southern accent and you can go to all the different places in the South. But Artie's got kind of a standard similar to mine. If we spent a little time together, I could hear, uh, I hear a little bit of New Jersey and I hear subtleties of this. Okay, so nice. a, a bit of a blank canvas. I could I could <laughs> go anywhere from here. <laughs> sure. My little experiment at the Colosseum was so much fun, don't you think? Though I guess sometimes a worker ant will turn on his queen. Chris, are you okay? Oh, that's right. You two are brother and sister, aren't you? I had a brother once, too. He really wasn't much fun. He couldn't even wake me up on time. But I've released him of all his responsibilities. You think everyone in this world is here to serve you, don't you? Serve me? No. I think everyone else is here to serve my experiments. <laughs> What would you say are the different positives or preferences that you have between voicing anime characters that are conceived for a more cartoonish or fantastical world and video game characters like Annette Birkin or maybe not so much Alexia Ashford but human-based characters who are placed in a more human world context? Um, I really enjoy doing all of them and it's just you just go to a different place in yourself with the the ones that are cartoonish, I guess, as you would say, you kind of go to a more playful place with them and you can get very, very playful with, you know, who they are. And, and also you can kind of expand like, you know, you know, they're not just a little sad, but they're hysterically crying or they're not just a little irritable, but they're the way they're irritable is funny. Or, you know, if they're mad, they're like, you know whereas when you get more realistic things aren't as broad you know and you just you kind of get closer to you narrow your play into a more a realistic how would this person really be how would they really react you know you know and then of course you have a lot of characters like that that are film and tv that you know don't exist so they might do something outlandish but it's also realistic to that type of person you know I enjoy kind of the whole spectrum of it. Okay, so Yoke has another question. Yoke's got a lot of questions today. Hopefully not to the extent of Annette, but you are a workaholic. Your list, yes. <laughs> your list yes, of anime and video game credits alone would suggest this. Yes, I uh, am. That, that was more of a statement than a question. <laughs> I will verify the statement. It is true. I, I'm one of those people who has that cool circumstance where – what would be my passion and hobby is also what I do for a living. One of my very, very, very favorite things in the world to do. It's my passion. It's my hobby. It's my drug. Um, it's what I do for a living. So I'm delighted to spend a lot of time doing it. You know, I, I'd rather, I'd rather be on a movie set than, than be on vacation. Oh, Truly, wow. you know, <laughs> I'd rather be in a studio recording than be in a party. My work is just so much fun and so stimulating and so rewarding and so magical. There are these video game sessions where you have an hour of screaming and that's, that's, <laughs> that's gotten very tiring and that's very difficult and exhausting. And I probably rather be in a party than scream for an hour, <laughs> but, that's gotta be taxing for sure. but, um, but I'm still feel privileged to do it. And I love the other parts of, of the characters for, you know, yeah. and, uh, so yeah, I, I, I am a workaholic. I mean, I, 
there's other things in life I do love and, and, you know, I love spending time in nature and I, I love swimming. I swim every morning and I love creating in different ways. But yeah, if, if I have an opportunity to be doing what I love working, I will, I will be there doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes to in your performance for us to enjoy with such a, a considerable body of work when you get to play these characters like Annette and Alexia, particularly in these remasters where they are multidimensional and yeah. not necessarily out and out antagonist or protagonist that perhaps you can draw back on previous roles for that experience. Yeah, absolutely. There's resonances of different roles or essences or pieces of them that will sometimes kind of echo back into some other roles that one plays. Also, just because, simply because, you know, my instrument is myself. And so, you know, parts of myself that will relate to a certain character will also come through in another character. You know, not even because I'm pulling upon an older character for a, a newer character, but just because I'm pulling apart a part of myself that was similar in both characters, you know? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Karen. Now, moving on, we have a question from USS Command. What has been your favorite video game production to work on and why? Oh, my goodness. There have been so many <laughs> that I love and for so many different reasons. I'd actually say this most recent Resident Evil 2 remake is, has been one of my very favorite just because I think that the characters are so complex and that, you know, that's just such a treat when you get to work in that complexity. And I mean, I've had the privilege of working with Tom Keegan quite a few times. I mean, we worked together 15 years ago when I first got into Los Angeles, I think. And I've just had the privilege of working with him over the years, but working motion capture with him is just, it's such a treat. He really comes at it as an actor's director and helps you really drop in and make the performance so alive and believable, you know, yes. and helps yeah. you find the truth in each moment. That's what we're giving to our audiences. So there are so many cool experiences I've had over the years, but I'd say that's definitely one of my favorites. Absolutely. That looks bad. It feels worse. Believe me. Talk about what you said. I don't know how much I believe. Just tell me you'll destroy that G sample. No, it's evidence. It's going to the FBI. <laughs> she's not FBI. She's a mercenary. She's gonna sell it. The G virus is gonna go to the highest bidder. I hope you're right. But if the G virus gets into the wrong hands. <laughs> okay, so this is the last question of part one. And uh, over to Aaron, who's got that. Okay, the last question is from Sonny Bauer. And it basically says, what projects are you currently working on right now and for the future your many fans around the world can look forward to? Oh, thanks, Sonny. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> The projects that, um, well, that they can see me in right now. Preacher is still on the air and I'm in season three and I'll let you discover that. I'm recurring on the wonderful TV series Bosch right now. That's on Amazon Prime. I love that show. So I'm really proud to be on it. Code Geass, the movie Code Geass is opening in theaters. May 7th and 8th, I believe. And so go out to those movie theaters and see it because it's even, it's way cooler on the big screen. 
it'll be a few months after that before it comes out streaming on anything. So if you want to see Code Geass, I'd say hit the theaters as soon as possible. And I play Colin in that. There are a lot of surprises in there, and I think fans will really enjoy it. It's very different, but I think fans will really enjoy it. Oh, cool. Um, and I'm really excited about that. And I have a movie that will be coming out sometime this year, which is a big mystery. I'm not allowed to talk about it too much, but it is called The Onania Club, and it is directed, written and directed by the infamous Tom Six. Ooh. Of the human centipede. Oh boy! <laughs> dun, dun, and it's going to be a very controversial mu- movie, and I'm very proud of it. It's um, yeah, it's pretty out there. So, for those of you who know Tom Six, can just begin to imagine and let your imaginations roll, and and you you won't even begin to imagine what this is going to be. And they have a very disturbing trailer online. So you can go to YouTube and Google the Onania Club trailer and see the trailer. Very thought-provoking, extremely thought-provoking. And then I'm going to be in an upcoming TV series, and I can't announce it yet. But I think that a lot of your fans will really be excited about it. It's an on-camera series. Oh, um, oh boy. And it's another sort of remake and I'm just, I had so much fun on set and it's so well done and I'm just giddy to talk about it, but I can't. So hopefully by the time we get to part two, I'll be able to announce that and, and share some fun stories from it. We would love that. Mm-hmm. Your fans, the Resident Evil fans will probably be a sort of same fan group as people who would enjoy this TV series. Oh, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but in no. a few weeks I will be able to. Okay, that would be great. incredible. Oh, fantastic. Well, when we record part two of the interview, that will be just, oh, wow. We're going to be absolutely delighted and privileged to talk to you about that. We can share that with all the Resident Evil and Survival Horror fans. Oh, great. Yeah. Horror fans will love it. That's all I will say. Is all I will say. <laughs> um, and lastly, I just want to um, reiterate that I will be doing the workshop in the San Francisco Bay Area, May 11th. Um, and I think there's still a few spots open if people want to jump for those who are available to come in the area. And Karen, what should anyone do who wants to attend the May 11th Voice Artist Workshop? You can Google Strawberry Hills Music or Strawberry Hills VoiceOver Workshop Karen Strassman. Um, you can also go on to my Facebook fan page where I have a post about it and a link to Eventbrite. You can sign up through Eventbrite. I've also posted about it on Instagram. My Instagram is at Karen Strassman. My Twitter is at Karen Strassman. I posted there. My Facebook fan page is just Karen Strassman fan page. And also, um, I'll be doing a few other workshops in that area and you can put yourself on their mail- mailing list. So, you know, you know, on the Strawberry Hill mailing list. So you can get their information directly if you want, if you can't come to this one. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted for anybody who wants to come and, and work with me on that. And also, if you guys have any questions that you just want to ask me directly, feel free to, uh, you know, send out a tweet. Hit me up on my Facebook fan page and I try and check those as regularly as possible and answer the questions. That's extremely kind of you, you know, to be so engaged and, and connected with your fans who are, can just only learn so, so much, you know, in this short period of time that we've had just benefiting from, from your experience and your knowledge. So thank you. And I'll make sure the Eventbrite link we will have yeah. in the description for this interview. Oh, oh, wonderful. 
Well, Karen, you've spent two hours with us. It's been truly a, a joy. Very, very interesting just to benefit from your stories, from all your roles in, in this industry. Thank you so very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I echo that as well, Karen. Thank you so much for being gener- generous with your time and generous bringing us into the uh, the acting world. It was wonderful to get some some of those, uh, I don't want to like say samples, but I guess that's something Annette mm-hmm. Birkin would say as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was really a, a treat to see you go through all those accents like that, and, to, and it's inspiring. So thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure, you guys. And thank you from me for joining us. And I hope you come back for part two so we I, can learn I more about you. Back, I am coming back for part two. You guys have wrote me in, and I can't wait. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, you. Nan, you guys have really good questions. So thank you. Thanks to the three of you and everybody else who's participated with questions. They're compelling and interesting questions and have really been, you know, a lot of fun to, to think about and answer. So you guys really know what you're doing. I, I do as many interviews as I, I can, you know, and a lot of people don't really know what they're doing. And sometimes it's kind of awkward or, and you guys are really, you really know what you're doing. And it's such, such a pleasure to converse with you because of that. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. yeah. Pre- appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank yes. you. So my pleasure, you guys. See you very, very soon or talk to you very, very soon. I should have killed him while I had the chance. I don't know why, I just couldn't do it. He was your husband. Honestly, we were more married to our work than each other. What about Sherry? How could you just leave her all alone and while Rackham City burned to hell? I couldn't let my daughter grow up in a world with the G-Virus in it. But that's more Power. 